All right, go ahead and make your way and be seated. We're going to go ahead and get started. We started talking about the book of Malachi as a staff. It was uh, early November whenever we meet on staff meetings. And Matt talked about having some people other than him preach. So he told me and Luke, which he ended up not happening, but told the two of us to kind of look through Malachi and find some passages of scripture that really stick out to us. And fortunately, because of a young experience I had with a kid, as a kid, I was able to give Matt an answer like the same day on what I wanted to preach on. And that's because I did a thing called Bible drill as, as a young child. It's, it's not as popular today as it was when I was a kid, um, but it actually is quite a, a good thing to do, especially third through sixth grade in the state of Indiana. And they give you a, a list of Bible verses to memorize and then parables to memorize where they are. And they make a really big competition out of it. And so you'll have a, a church competition, and if you score a certain amount right, you move on to your association. And if you score a certain amount right, you move on to the state. And me being 10 years old, I was really good at turning the Bible and the way for me to sin in pride because I learned all of these verses not because I wanted to grow in Christ and learn about the Bible, but because I wanted to be better than all my friends at memorizing Bible verses. And so we would get to these competitions, and one of the verses that just came up every year, and I knew it was a go-to that I had to have memorized, was Malachi 3.10. And so Malachi isn't a book I really read through all that often. You know, there's, there's a list of books that people read all the time. People love going through Genesis. They love going through Ruth. They love going through the Gospels. Malachi's not one of those books that I really studied a lot. And so when Matt brought it up, I said, I know one verse in Malachi. Let me look that up. Let me see where the story starts, where the story ends. And that's the answer I gave. So that's why we're going over and I'm teaching today. Um, today we're going to be going through Malachi 6 through 18. So if, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me. But if not, we do have the verses up on the screen, which let me get those going. Nope. Well, I'll give you a sneak peek at the next one. Technically, I'm a millennial, but I'm not good with technology. All right, three, six through seven. Because I, Yahweh, have not changed, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. Since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you ask, how can we return? Um, you may not know this, but whenever you're reading through the Old Testament, the first book in the Old Testament is Genesis. You might think that is the first one that was written. That's actually not the case. The, the first book in the Bible that was written chronologically, most people would believe, was the book of Job. And believe it or not, the, the book of Ecclesiastes, which is kind of like in the middle, was actually one of the first ones written after Deuteronomy. And so whenever I'm studying through the Bible, whenever I'm teaching youth groups, I'm always thinking, if I'm doing an Old Testament study, 
is this other book written before or after this time period? And what I love about the book of Malachi is, I may not know where everybody else is in the time frame, but Malachi is undisputably the last book written in the Old Testament. So whenever we're reading through Malachi and we're talking about the people of Israel, we can know that all these past stories have come to pass and there's a relationship between God and the people of Israel that we can reference as past events and we can go through and see that. Um, so when God is speaking in these passages, there's a long history of disobedience going on. So whenever he's saying, you know, he's loved and he's never changed, um, he talks about Jacob not being destroyed and giving them a chance at repentance. This is actually a reference to a promise God already gave them in the book of Zechariah. So our next verse that we're going to go over is Zechariah 1.3. Um, and you can kind of see the similarities between that and Malachi. It says, so tell the people... This is what the Lord of hosts says. Return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You know, God is constantly giving the people of Israel, kind of similar to the, us today, a chance on how to return to him and be spared from the wrath that he's constantly talking about in the book of Malachi. But in return, instead of repenting, returning to the Lord, and the Lord returning back to them, they choose to rob God instead. In verse 8, and moving on, it says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You ask, how do we rob you? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions, you are suffering under a curse. Yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Have any of you ever been in a situation where someone has obviously wronged you in a particular way, or they've done something wrong, yet they still have the audacity to look you in the eye and say, well, well what did I do wrong? Any, has that ever happened to anybody else? I know especially if you're a parent and you have young kids, they'll look you in the eye and say, I did nothing wrong, whatever. It's, it's pretty obvious. Um, a, a story that's recently happened to me, it's probably not one I should stare, given like Half the people I work with are sitting out here right now. Um, but an event like this happened at a restaurant I work at quite recently. And we, we had a server who did something just blatantly wrong, easily provable that it was really wrong. And then afterwards looked me in the eye and said, I don't think I did anything wrong. And that, that's how God feels when the people of Israel are saying, well, how have we robbed you? Um, this particular employee, and this is a story that everybody who I work with knows already, but rang up an alcoholic beverage and gave it to a 10-year-old. Um, pretty, pretty significantly bad thing to do. Um, we have a lot of fail-safes as a company. We, we do serve alcohol. We are a full-service restaurant. We have a lot of standards put into place to where no one could ever make that mistake unless they're just on a different planet not paying attention. So thing one is whenever the kid says, I would like a virgin strawberry daiquiri, which... I mean, you can do what you want with your own kids. I don't really like the, the thought of making alcohol cool to young kids. Like when they order kitty cocktails and virgin daiquiris, I, I think that's just kids pretending like they're drinking when they're not. I'm not a big fan. But we do, we do offer those. So when a kid orders that, we have a very specific button that says virgin drinks, virgin strawberry daiquiri. And instead of ringing up the $3 drink, she rang up the $7.50 drink of a strawberry daiquiri. So that's fail-safe one. There's a $4.50 price difference between the non-alcoholic and the alcoholic version. Fail-safe two is whenever it prints off at the bar who makes the drinks, it will show up red if it's a non-alcoholic drink. It'll show up black if it's an alcoholic drink. 
pretty common sense. You see it's red, good. No. <laughs> you know, if it prints out black, you know it's an alcoholic drink, so that's kind of fail-safe too. Um, fail-safe three, which we had in place at the time, but isn't something we, we do now as a company because we have so many other things. You put a clear straw in a non-alcoholic drink and a black straw in an alcoholic drink. So it has a black straw. So she's ignored three pretty easy fail-safes, gives this drink to, I, I mean, he was 10 at the oldest. He's with his grandma, drinks the drink, says, Grandma, this tastes funny. When you're a grandma and a 10-year-old tells you your drink tastes funny, what do you do? You say, you don't know what you're talking about. Keep drinking the drink, kid. So he did. He kept drinking the drink and eventually he said, no, grandma, there's, there really is something funny about this drink. Grandma sips the drink, realizes that there is alcohol in this drink, and a pretty bad situation ensued. You know, they, they sued the crap out of us, which I would probably do the same thing if I, somebody gave my kid alcohol. And so naturally, we went to fire this girl. So we sat her in the office, explained to her the situation, and she said, I don't know why you're doing this. I didn't do anything wrong. I looked her in the eye like, how the heck do you think you didn't do anything wrong? You, you literally violated every rule that we have in order to, to make this mistake. And so that, that's what this situation is. It was most directly tied to it. When I think about my relationship with my team members and then God's relationship with the, the leaders of Israel, they've They've easily violated God's commandments countless times over, and they're looking him in the eye and saying, how have we robbed you? And, you know, God doesn't have to give them an answer, but he goes over something that he's gone over quite a few times before. Um, and he says in Malachi 3.10, oh, sorry, Okay, I'm going to read it. You all can listen. <laughs> Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so there may food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and the vine of your field and will not and it will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate, for you will be delightful on the land, says the Lord of hosts. Um, what's unique about this is you're seeing this commandment that God gives about tithe, but it's not the first time he's given this command. This is something he's had to communicate to the people over and over multiple times. As you can see in Leviticus 27, 30 through 32, is another example where he had to give that same command to the people of Israel. It says here, every tenth of the land's produce, grain for the soil, fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. If a man decides to redeem any part of his tenth, he must add a fifth to its value. Every tenth animal from the herd or the flock which passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. Another example to the people of Israel where he gave the same command was in the book of Deuteronomy. It says in Deuteronomy 12, 6, and 7, you are to bring there your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tents and personal contributions, your vow offerings and free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. You will eat there in the presence of your Lord God and rejoice with your household in everything you do because the Lord your God has blessed you. So when we're reading Malachi, and we understand it was the last book written in the Old Testament, 
we have these references where God's already communicated this message and they still wonder, how have we robbed you from it? It's pretty clear, you know, I'd imagine if I were God, I would have handled the situation a lot differently because I'm a lot less long-suffering than God is. But it's pretty obvious, and the Israelites already know that it's happened. They've already violated this command in the past, and it's already come with earthly consequences. It talks about the earthly consequences of that in Nehemiah 13.10. It says, I also found out that because the portions for the Levites had not been given... Each of the Levites and the singers performing the services had gone back to his own field. So you need to understand, whenever God establishes someone who is supposed to be devoting their time to glorifying and serving him, um, they have to be able to afford to do that. They have to be able to have food, and they have to be able to have shelter. And when people aren't giving, the people who then lead the service have to return to their own fields. That's what happened in the book of Nehemiah 13.10. So... When you're failing to give God the the 10% that he commands, uh, you're not just robbing God of that 10%, you're also kind of robbing God of what that 10% was going to do. So it was going to be there for the pastors and for the singers and the performers of the Levites' time. Um, I mean, it's it's pretty obvious that they had to go back and work in the fields. I think about this in modern times. We we see this all across America with our churches. Uh, People don't give... Um, churches constantly are having less and less, you know, financial money coming in because people aren't giving their tenth. And then the pastor says, he's typically the first one when money's short, okay, I I won't take a salary, I won't take pay. And then they go out and they they get another day job. And then, you know, the the people of the church are like, hey, I need you on on Tuesdays. How come you can't help me out on Tuesdays anymore? You're, You're failing me as a pastor. When really that pastor had to go out and get another job because people weren't giving their tenth. So that has a realistic earthly consequence. We see that in Nehemiah. It's obviously happening in the same time. So whenever he's talking about bringing that full tenth, Understand there aren't just holy and heavenly consequences to it. There's, there's earthly consequences that actually comes with it. Um, what's also unique about that is it actually comes with a promise. It comes with a test, a chance for us to test God. It, it kind of, you would think, goes against the nature of God to lay out a test. He says, test me in this way, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. Luke 4.12, Jesus responds and says, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. So whenever you see God giving us a chance to test him and to test his faithfulness and what he is willing to do whenever we do tithe, really goes to show the seriousness involved and how he feels about it. Because very few times in the Bible does God give people a chance, hey, if you do this, I promise to do this in return. So just understand when he's doing that, it's something very serious. Um, One thing when I first read through this that I didn't really catch, and it took me a little bit to understand, in verse 11 it says, I will rebuke the devourer for you. How many of you know what devourer, what that's talking about in that situation? Yeah, uh, directly translated into Hebrew, Hebrew, it's eater is actually the word that it's translated to. So in this, whenever it's talking about the devourer, it's actually talking about locusts. Um, fun fact, if you ever want on who wants to be a millionaire or Jeopardy, the word devourer is actually only used twice in the entire Bible, and so this is one of the two times, which I thought was kind of cool. But when it's saying he will rebuke the devourer for you, he's saying 
locusts and pests and people that would normally destroy your crops, he's going to keep them away. So even though you're giving him a tenth, you're gaining even more than that in return. And that goes hand in hand with the promise he's giving in Malachi 3.10, saying that it will return actually to you. Um, it's, it's almost funny to see how arrogant people are in their response, and it's true today as well. And we can see that in Malachi 3.13. It says, Your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of hosts? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. So here we really see the arrogance of the leaders in here. They're saying, hey, we're following you, and it's not being fruitful. Instead of helping out us, you're helping out people who don't serve you, which is like a huge slap in the face when you've read through all of Malachi. Because in Malachi 2.17, we understand that they've questioned God, the leaders. In 2.11, it says that they violated God's covenant. And Malachi 1.7, it says that we've defiled his altar. In Malachi 2.9, we've disobeyed his laws. Um, we've despised his name in Malachi 1.6. So people who have committed all of these sins and done all of this against God are now saying, hey, we've served you and nothing good has come out of it. You know, I, I, I watched part of the IU basketball game. I was, I was at work yesterday. But I saw that, that Bob Knight got to come back to IU. Um, people obviously feel different about him. But I almost wonder when I was studying this and it made me think, could you imagine if a coach at his time when he was here at IU said, hey, we've been doing your things your way, but we've decided that hasn't helped us. The other teams that aren't doing your way are doing better than us. Man, we're going to stop doing things your way, and we're going to do things our way because it's more fruitful for us. Can you imagine what response a guy like Bob Knight or Gene Keedy would have given? And people are, have the audacity to say that to God. But kind of blows my mind, but, you know, we, we do that ourselves. I, I always try to put myself in the story whenever we're going through a Bible study. Um, I hope that you do the same, and it, it helps me question myself whenever we're doing a study, and I, I think, how many times personally have I questioned God? God, I, I'm serving you, and you're blessing this person, and whenever I make those bold, arrogant claims, I'm kind of like denying all, all the sins that I commit against God, and I, I sin every single day, and it's arrogant for me to claim that I follow him and he isn't blessing me, when really I'm, I'm not really following him to the degree that I'm supposed to. So when you put yourself in that situation and you see that, you, you, you kind of understand, hey, when I read through and see the leaders of Israel, they seem like idiots, but the more and more I think about it, I'm kind of in the same situation that they're in myself. Um, I think that mindset is, is evident in my life and in the life of the Israelites, that even though they know and they understand the Bible, they kind of fail to grasp what the full message of the Bible is. Because works actually isn't really the standard in which God establishes salvation and blessing to begin with. Um, Matt went over this verse a, a few weeks ago, but I really like it and it really gets me to think. So we're, we are going to talk about it again. And that's Isaiah 64, 6. It says, but we are all as an unclean thing, 
and all of our righteousness are as filthy rags, and all we do is fades as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Uh, I'm going to go on a, a little bit of a rabbit trail on this verse to make a very small point, uh, but you know my sermon's only 32 minutes, so bear with me. Uh, I, I, how many of you know what the word idiolect means? Good. I actually just recently learned what the word idiolect means myself. But this comes into play big time in this verse. So what idiolect means is it's the words that you choose to use that makes you uniquely you. And we have to, uh, you know, look through this to see filthy rags is a good example of idiolect. So to give you guys a better understanding of what idiolect is, if I were to ask Coda, who's, how old are you, Coda? Fifteen. If I were to sit down like this with my legs crisscross and sit down, what do you call this? Crisscross applesauce. That's what young people call this. If I were to ask Lorna, my wife, who's 28, what do you call this? Indian style. How many of you call this Indian style? How many of you call this crisscross applesauce? You see the age difference between the people who said Indian style and the people who said crisscross applesauce. A good way I can tell how old Coda is, if he were to write, if he were to say crisscross applesauce, I know, this is someone, what, 22 and younger. You don't just do that to discover someone's age. We can learn a lot more about that through our idiolect. How many of you say soda? How many of you say pop? You're from where? Who said soda? Where are you from? Franklin, more southern Indiana. I know if someone's from the upper Midwest or if they're from south of the upper Midwest based off of whether they say soda or they say pop. Um, If I were to grab, uh, go to your kitchen and pull out a little thing that you use to, to wipe down your dishes, how many of you call that a rag? How many of you call it a washcloth? You know, there's a little bit of a disparity, but that's typically young people like me call it a rag. Older people call it a washcloth. I have a a woman I work with. I think she's 63 years old. Her name's Peggy. Um, It's the most offensive thing in the world when I call a rag a rag. She always gets on to me, that's not a rag. It's a washcloth. Because in older times, the word rag meant something entirely different than what we use the word rag as today. So we need to understand that when we're looking at idiolect in Isaiah 64, 6. But what's cool is people actually do this to solve crime. They, they study the words that people use. How many of you have ever heard of Ted Kaczynski? Unabomber. Anybody heard of the word Unabomber? Pretty famous guy used to make bombs and mail and send them to people. When they would open the package, the bomb would explode. What was cool, and it's not that the situation was cool, is they had no evidence ever tying Ted Kaczynski to the crime. Never had fingerprints, never had any type of DNA. There was nothing connecting him to being the Unabomber at all. What was really unique is he wrote an article in a paper called The Manifesto, and they studied this paper, the FBI, over and over, and because of the words in his manifesto that he used and the words that he didn't use, they were able to tell certain things about him based off of his idiolect. 
they figured out this is someone who had to have gone to the University of Harvard because the writing style that they used was only used at the University of Harvard in a period of time. Because of the words that he used, they determined he was not married. They also determined he was in a community that was exclusively white. And so they eventually said, hey, here's everything we know about the Unabomber. We know he's from a Montana or another mountain area. We know he went to the University of Harvard. We know he's not married and he lives in a white community. Does anybody know anything with ideas that are like this manifesto and also matches that description? And the person's sister-in-law actually came forward and said, this sounds kind of like my brother-in-law, Ted. And that's how they caught the Unabomber, based off his idiolect. So I make this big, long point to say here, when we say righteousness are as filthy rags, for most of us who said rags a washcloth and we raised our hand, it's not a washcloth. Whenever we see filthy rags and that idiolect, what they're saying is this is actually a cloth that was used to clean up infection and blood and diseases. So it's not like a, a rag that you, know, you use to dust your furniture. It's something much worse than that. So I think we fail as a younger culture to grasp the seriousness of this verse when it says your righteous deeds are like a filthy rag because we don't have a mindset of what a filthy rag is. I, I think when I was a kid, my mom would give me the pledge and a wash rag and I would kind of wipe everything off. and That was my mindset. This is a filthy rag. Like, that's not a filthy rag at all. So that, that's what our good deeds are. You know, the people of Malachi are, are, are relying on the same thing. Hey, we followed you. You know, we've, we've mourned over sin. They have the mindset that their good works is what makes their relationship with God. And that's not the case at all. God says their good works are like filthy rags. It's kind of like some depressing verses to go through when you read through Malachi chapter 3. But what's really cool is even though the rest of the chapter is a lot of negativity, it actually finishes off with some good words of encouragement. So we can move on to Malachi 3, 16 through 18. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared Yahweh and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. A special possession on the day I'm preparing. I will have compassion on them as the man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will see again the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. What's really encouraging in this passage is even though we're seeing the leader, leaders of the people of Israel, um, they're obviously rebellious and they're defying against God and they're saying, hey, we think we're righteous even though we're not. What's nice about that is we still see people even in those times who are hearing the word of God, that are listening, they're repenting, and it says for those people, you know, God has a special place and a book that is written for them. What's cool is even though this book was written at 500 BC, it's prophesying the end of times in that. And that book's talked again in the book of Revelation, which I'm told there's only one revelation, not multiple. I always called it Revelations. <laughs> so Revelations 20, see, did it again, <laughs> 11 through 15 says, then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. 
Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the, judge, the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead. Death and Hades gave up their dead. All were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So we see that reference again in the early parts of this passage. It says that the dead, great and small, were standing before the throne. And what's open before them? Books. Now, another book of open was open, which is the book of life. So whenever God's saying the people who repent and come back to him in the book of Malachi, they were put in a book of remembrance. This is the book that's actually being talked about in the end of times. You know, you'll be able to distinguish the righteous and the wicked, not based off of their works, but whose name is actually written in that book of life. Uh, these passages of scriptures, they come with a lot of challenges. A challenge to me is, is what am I doing with my time, with my talent, my treasures, and my testimony? Am I keeping all of that to myself, or am I giving a tenth of what is already God's back to him? And that's simply a bare minimum of what it requires. He says here, everything that can comes, comes from him, and he's just requiring us to give a tenth back, which, you know, if I'm keeping 90% of something that's not mine, that's still a pretty good deal. Um, another challenge that this, these passages of scripture have is, you know, are we thinking we're serving him and thinking that we're being faithful and failing to identify and eliminate sin that's in our own lives? Are you someone that's relying on your good works to get you into heaven as opposed, you know, to your relationship with Christ?